Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, delegates, all to episode 17 of the Delegation Game. My, my, you have been busy delegate bees over the last two weeks. I returned home from a wedding in Slovakia to discover that, at long last, a German peace treaty going by the name of the Treaty of Buckingham has been put on the table. That treaty will come under a lot of scrutiny in this episode, not by me, but by those concerned parties who aren't entirely happy with it. But a shout out to the Spanish premier for taking matters into his own hands and putting something on the table in the first place. True to form, now that the draft is in play, 
we have the chance to respond and alter it where needs be. It is also necessarily open to the addition of any other treaties that we have over the next few weeks, which includes measures like the Peace Treaty for Hungary and the Albanian National Assembly proposals, both of which passed handily and which we'll look at in due course. Incredibly, it's time for another announcement, which I didn't think I'd be making so late in this game, but a huge welcome to our new delegate from Canada, Major General William Antrobus Griesbach, an advocate of Canadian independence in a Commonwealth arrangement, a fan of the total disarmament of Germany, and a former mayor of Edmonton to boot. Thanks to his player Colin Bell for joining us, and for following along our narrative as a listener over the last few months or so. I think it'd be safe to say that you'll be our last new player, Mr. Bell, so thanks for joining us, and I'm sure your Dominion partners, not to mention the Canadian Premier, will give you a warm Empire welcome. So in this episode, we have to deal with several issues. We have to analyse the German treaty from the perspective of all the delegates. We have to continue to narrate the exploits of the other delegates in the conference, and we must catch up with General McKay in Russia to see how the Clemenceau Directive is getting on after several weeks of not much news. I do have another mission, though, or should I say, a request. From what I've seen, this game is essentially split between two camps of players, those eager to forge ahead with what they've done, and those concerned that realism and fairness are being thrown out the window. And you know who you are in both of these camps, I'm not going to name names or anything, but what I would ask is that you please be civil. And again, please stop trying to make impossible magic happen. In spite of what you have told me, certain laws have to be upheld, and you'll see in this episode how your actions do have consequences. God armor, as I've said last time, is well and truly not applicable here, and from what I've seen, an unfortunate undercurrent of nastiness remains in some quarters. It's unfortunate to even have to bring this up, guys, because it only applies to a very small amount of you, but please, just don't provoke each other unnecessarily. Let me just say that if the Big Three paid this much attention to the Middle East in real life, the Treaty of Versailles would never have been made at all. And while it is true that we have the German peace in situ now, don't think that it's time to lose yourself at this moment in other ventures. The German peace remains the main event, and if you genuinely believe that your work in that area is done, then why not try and solve the other issues of the Central Powers, who are also in need of peace treaties too? Perhaps you could do far better than anyone ever imagined, and the poor delegates won't have to stick around in London for another 18 months. What happens in the end is up to you, but do remember that this is only a game and it's supposed to be fun. You're all adults, so I'm not going to say any more, but I would like to not be told on by other delegates about other delegates for the next month. It would be nice if you, much like your delegates, could end on a high. So with that being said, with all the parenting out of the way, Let's bring you to our first scene. Picture the large conference room of the Anabay Hotel, where the Big Five and others besides are gathered, pouring through the text of the draft of the Treaty of Buckingham. Completely unacceptable, the Italian Premier spat, an act which caused several eyes to roll. Felix Kalender took a deep breath. Mediation had never been so difficult. Signor Orlando, Kalender began, please understand that peacemaking is a very delicate process and sometimes compromise facilitates the way forward better than antagonism. Orlando took a deep breath and said in response, Monsieur Kalender, please forgive me for my outburst, but I really must protest. If compromise is the way forward, then 
Why have neither Britain nor France compromised in any tangible respect? Instead, they've taken territory from victorious allied nations like Italy and handed it to neutral nations like Spain. They've impinged upon the independence of states like Albania and Luxembourg and placed them under a French protectorate. In what sense, gentlemen of the conference, do these manoeuvres appear like a compromise? Instead, they appear as rapacious attacks upon the independence and freedom of nations and as acts of wanton aggression with a complete disregard for the sovereignty or interests of Italy. Lloyd George intervened with some briskness. Signor Orlando, my Spanish colleague has done his utmost to reach a fair outcome with this treaty. It is, I should add, subject to change, being only a draft. With all due respect, Prime Minister, Orlando replied with all the speed and grace of a machine gun, I cannot help but feel as though Italy is being deliberately attacked by this document. And may I ask why neutral Spain, a country which has spilled no blood in this war, now feels entitled to claim territory? Calender took a deep breath, but before he could intervene, Antonio Mora, the Spanish premier, spoke up. Senor Orlando, my friend, surely you recognise Spanish interests as supported by the Pact of Cartagena? Therein, the rights and interests of Spain are ensured and enshrined. In addition, you should note that the formerly British territories of northern Kenya, British Somalia and Ogodan will be transferred to Italy. Is this not a suitable recompense? Hardly, Signor Mora, Orlando replied. No Spaniards died to secure Libya, but Italians did. No Italians have connected themselves to the soil of Somalia, Kenya, Ogodan and... Oh, what was that other location? Cabinda, on the west coast of Africa, in between the Congo, Calender said. Ah, Orlando replied. You attempt to buy Italy off with these pieces of land. You don't even see fit to give us all of Kenya. Just a slice? If you were in my shoes, gentlemen, how could you act any differently? Should I remain silent, I should have to explain myself to Parliament and to the Italian people how I swapped that sacred colony for these disconnected bits of land. Why, I could not live with the shame. If you're trying to drive a bargain with this arrangement, you simply must do better. Teddy Roosevelt coughed, and the men seated at the table turned towards him. The room was crowded indeed, and had never been designed for such a large gathering. The large, polished oak table had been meant for only a handful of men. But seated around it were representatives from the United States, France, Britain, Italy and Japan, while further down the table sat representatives from Hungary, Romania, Poland, Greece and Alsace-Lorraine. Sharing the debate was the indefatigable Swiss delegate Felix Kalender. The date was the 8th of June 1919, and the sun had risen high in the midday sky, shining generously through the panelled windows. A marvellous sight, but also a recipe for a stuffy, warm affair. Those less accustomed to the heat had become uncomfortable and irritable as time went on. Once or twice, a delegate from a more northerly climate had had to step out. The splendid luxury of the box-shaped room had long since lost its appeal. These men were tired, grumpy, and hungry. Lunch was due in about an hour, and they had been beating this resilient horse all morning. I do not like this arbitration committee either, Orlando added. Why, it sounds as though Italy could have a disadvantageous peace forced upon her by her former allies. This is nothing like the original arbitration committee which President Marshall Foch had proposed. This name drop compelled Foch, recently returned from Warsaw, to intervene. As he did so, 
Premier Poincaré nervously puffed on his cigarette beside him. The President Marshal wasn't the best talker and could inflame the tension in the room if he wasn't careful. Signor Orlando, Foch began, you know I have the utmost respect for you and for Italy's sacrifice, but my British and Spanish colleagues firmly believe that the best course of action is to proceed as outlined in this treaty. Orlando scoffed in response. President Marshall, I must direct this question to you, then, and ask how you imagine Italians will react when they see that this peace gives them nothing but her allies everything. Italy is still reeling from the wounds inflicted by Austria and Germany and from the loss of half a million men. She joined the war in the hope that the post-war settlement would bring her people some succour, and she fought and bled side by side her allies for the same reason. Please do not ask me to bring this document back to Rome. I cannot foresee the consequences, but I know they will be grave. Signor Orlando, Sir Alistair Tancred began, may I inquire about comments made a fortnight ago in relation to events in the Middle East? Orlando's expression suddenly changed, and he became much more defensive. Yes, Orlando replied. Tancred moved quickly. You admitted, Signor, that Jewish volunteers from Italy helped to provoke revolution in the Arabian Kingdom, did you not? At this, Orlando erupted and practically jumped out of his seat, bellowing, The right honourable gentleman knows that I did no such thing. I merely commented on the fact that Jewish volunteers from Italy had travelled to the region. Need I remind you that this practice also took place in the other European nations? How convenient that you turn your attention towards Italy, as though my countrymen were somehow uniquely responsible for the act and its consequences. Tancred's expression betrayed his surprise at the outburst. The Italian premier was evidently under a lot of pressure. Orlando now sat with his head in his hands. Bruce Pug then spoke up. Gentlemen, I must urge you all to remain calm. Signor Orlando, I'm confident that Sir Alistair meant no offence, but the volatile nature of the conflict in the Middle East moves men to be inherently suspicious nonetheless. Signor, I want you to know that America is on your side. Before President Wilson was taken ill, he had said much about Italian requests in Fiume and the Tyrol. I understand that these concerns remain unanswered by this conference, and thus open to exploitation on the ground. Is that correct? Orlando sighed before responding. That is correct, Mr. Pug. It seems, furthermore, that events in the recent conflicts between Serbian forces and Slav forces, supported by their Italian allies, have muddied the waters as well. I believe Fiume is currently under the regime of a pro-Italian assembly, as it should be truly, for the city and its suburbs are overwhelmingly Italian in sympathy. Teddy Roosevelt rolled his eyes. This was what Wilson had spent more time warning him about than any other issue, Orlando's insistence on claiming Fiume. It was imperative, Wilson had told Roosevelt, that Italian claims to Fiume be resisted, else the French in the Rhineland and the Poles in Danzig would demand more as well. But what if Fiume was already under a pro-Italian regime, and what if that regime enjoyed the support of the majority of the inhabitants of Fiume? Wilson's rulebook on self-determination had no answer to that, so Roosevelt tread carefully. Signor Orlando, Roosevelt began, are we confident that the regime in place in Fiume is a, a democratic one, 
Has the Assembly of Italian Nobles been informed of the proceedings of the conference here, and are they mindful of the need to maintain at all times the democratic legitimacy which empowers all states, however small? Orlando jumped at the chance to justify the act. Indeed, Mr. President, I have been told that the earlier action by local militias to oust the illegitimate Yugoslav regime was greeted with jubilation, and that Italian flags were raised over the local assembly, which quickly began vetting candidates and elected them roughly a fortnight ago. I can show you the map of the area where Fiume's jurisdiction reaches. Roosevelt nodded, before saying with some caution, Gentlemen, I would like to make a proposal. You can call it unjust or opportunistic, but you should not ignore it altogether. A primary fault with this conference and this treaty is the danger that Italy feels prejudiced against. Thus I ask whether some compromise could not be found in the Balkans or Adriatic, which might induce Signor Orlando to agree to the current transfer of colonial territory. Fiume seems to me to be a natural extension of Italian culture and rule in the region, and I have been told that the statelets of Slovenia and Croatia maintain pro-Italian regimes following their liberation from the Serbian tyranny. In light of this, could it be proposed that the city-state of Fiume comes under Italian jurisdiction and that the countries of Slovenia and Croatia come under the protection of Rome as well? This would provide a safe land bridge for Italian interests. It would also enable Roman governance to guard against those unfortunate outbursts of Balkan nationalism. Perhaps a timed protection arrangement could be organised, where local affairs remain undisturbed, but Italian soldiers are permitted to guard against future displays of aggression from the Bulgarian, Austrian, Hungarian, or indeed the Serbian theatres. A thoughtful silence came over the room, which Orlando broke by speaking up and saying, Thank you for your honourable attempts to find a solution, Mr. President. I truly understand now why you were the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1905. Surely, if you can bring the Russian and Japanese peoples together in time of war, you can also bring wartime allies to peaceful relations too. I must confess that I find myself willing to accept this arrangement, pending a more detailed discussion with Britain, France and Spain regarding the transfer of colonial territory, discussions with Greece over the Dodecanese Islands and the transfer of the Tyrol region north of Italy, so that Austria may never threaten Italy again during wartime. Evidently, those present continued to mull this idea over, and Premier Poincaré continued to scrawl his thoughts on a piece of paper as he weighed up the pros and cons. The transferal of some Balkan states to the Italian camp was regrettable for the sake of expanding French mercantile interests, but it by no means made it impossible for expansion there in the future. There was also something to Roosevelt's idea that the arrangement might calm the Balkan region down. Following a series of wars which had ripped through the region and upset the delicate power balance since 1912, culminating in the heinous assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, it was difficult to imagine the Balkans ever settling down to civilised rule. Furthermore, a stable Balkans meant that guarding against German expansion or aggression would be easier. Perhaps, if the disagreements with Italy were resolved, Rome could be turned into a useful partner in the Adriatic, in the Mediterranean, and also south-central Europe. There was no guarantee, after all, that with King Charles heading Hungary, Habsburg ambitions would no longer re-emerge to threaten the peace. After mulling over his thoughts, Poincaré made a decision. 
Pending further discussion in the aforementioned areas, Poincaré announced, I believe this arrangement has much to recommend it. Roosevelt nodded, and Walter Cameron then stood up. Roosevelt rolled his eyes for the umpteenth time. Gentlemen, Cameron began, it brings me great pleasure to see some elements of hostility resolved, but I must urge that a solution be found to the Middle Eastern situation. Facts on the ground remain rare, but there does seem to be a general trend towards a resolution of the conflict. René Massigli offered his view. Forgive me, Mr. Cameron, but previously Signor Orlando said he would welcome an investigative committee to travel to the region. I ask that if Signor Orlando is still willing to accept the creation of this committee, will he support its conclusions, whatever they may say, once they are available? My country has nothing to hide, Mr. Cameron. Monsieur Massigli, Orlando said, adding, I welcome any opportunity to resolve the conflict in the Middle East and after the concessions which are proposed today, I am confident that Italy will be gracious enough to make a concession of its own. At this, the Polish representative, Paderewski, stood up. The big five leaders, who have been sitting across from one another, now strained their necks to look toward the other end of the table, where the less powerful delegates were seated. Thank you, gentlemen, for your efforts today. Signor Orlando, your willingness to compromise is to be admired. Signor Mora, I thank you for your diligence in getting a peace treaty in front of us today. Mr. Roosevelt, you know well of my affection for you and your family, and I am comforted to work with a man as talented in diplomacy as yourself. With that torrent of compliments, everyone felt themselves bracing for some kind of bad news or a difficult question, and sure enough, Paderewski obliged. Gentlemen, while we have made much progress with this treaty, there is also much to it that remains unclear. Poland, as you are aware, made great effort to sign a treaty with its German neighbour, which established and guaranteed its borders. This sensitive border region was secured under a friendship between France and Poland, and indeed, the basis for the Continental Defence Accord and the Clemenceau Directive was established in that very arrangement. I fear, though I do not wish to cause offence, that Signor Mora has neglected to consider the feelings of Poland with this draft treaty. In particular, I draw attention to Poland's lack of access to the sea. Need I remind you, gentlemen, that according to President Wilson's 13 of 14 points, Poland is guaranteed access to the sea. The Baltic Sea traditionally has been the lifeblood of Polish culture, commerce and history. The city of Gdansk, renamed thereafter to Danzig in the Germanic, was stolen from Poland and forcibly settled with German travellers in the late 18th century. This is a prime example of this historic legacy. Poland has been wronged so many times by its German neighbours. I urge the Signor Mora not break Allied promises to Poland now, out of fear of breaking Germany up. I must remind you that Germans have historically always been separated. Not until 1772 did this change with Frederick the Great's annexation of Polish West Prussia. Before that date, Poles and Germans lived in harmony, but unquestionably under the writ of the Polish king. If we are here today to fix historical mistakes, gentlemen, we must begin this task by looking at the crime done to Poland. And in that mission, we must not shy away from difficult decisions or from irritating Poland's powerful neighbours. Why, this was the very reason for the defence accord with France. By this arrangement, Poland and France resurrect their historic friendship in the name of common defence against bitter neighbours. 
Sometimes, gentlemen, the hard thing and the right thing are the same, and if my country's history has taught me anything, it is that the harder the mission, the more worthwhile it is, and the more sacred the reward. I support my Polish friend's quest for justice, Orlando said. Why should the vainglorious Germans be handed one scrap of historically Polish land? Lloyd George sighed. This request by Paderewski to get access to the sea went against not just the draft treaty of Buckingham, but also the Polish draft treaty. And yet, like a dog with a bone, Paderewski seemed determined to acquire Danzig. Perhaps there was some truth in Wilson's fear that once Italy was handed Fiume, Poland too would reach for Danzig. What was to be done now, though? Paderewski was so much more likeable when he was seated in front of his favourite instrument. These demands seriously complicated matters, and virtually guaranteed that the Germans would cry foul. Evidently, René Massigli said, the current treaty is subject to some alterations and considerations before it is presented in its complete form to the German delegates. I am confident, gentlemen, that with some additional work we can resolve these differences as they appear. Lady Nora Chalk then rose to her feet and held up a long document for effect, saying, Not to interrupt your deliberations, gentlemen, but I thought it only apt to bring some good news to the room at long last, for as you work through difficult questions, I am pleased to assure you that the problems Hungary has faced have been brought to a negotiated end. My people pay a high price for this peace, as they paid for the war, but with this treaty we are at least allowed to live in harmony and with the commitment to fairness and justice enshrined in the 14 points, clearly upheld. Like clockwork, Johan Bratianu then shot up out of his chair, not even waiting for Lady Nora Chalk to finish. He puffed smoke furiously, seemingly in her direction. Waiting for the eyes of the room to be on him, he then launched into a prepared speech. My Hungarian counterpart assumes much of the Romanian people if she imagines that the historic birthright of all true Romanian people to the Transylvanian region will be surrendered so... Mr. Bratianu, interrupted Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam, we have not had the pleasure of meeting formally, but you will know me as a voracious reader of treaties and terms. In the course of my perusal of the Hungarian Peace Treaty, I did not see any reference to a surrender of Romanian rights on Transylvania, only the just application of self-determination principles in the region. Surely you will admit that Hungarians, as well as Romanians, populate the Transylvanian region? It would be improper indeed to suggest otherwise, unless one had some dishonourable motive for portraying the demographics of the region in a certain way. Now, see here, Bratianu said, somewhat perturbed. I come from a long line of esteemed Romanian statesmen, all of whom were found inherently incapable of telling a lie. Believe me when I tell you, it is impossible to divide the region fairly, as Magyars and Romanians live in some villages side by side, in some border regions spread all over, in other places dominant, in others not. So, Fitzwilliam said cautiously, you admit the widespread of the two national groups? My dear boy! Bratianu replied in an attempt to regain some pride. Not just Romanians and Magyars, but also Germans, Ukrainians and other Slavs happily populate the Transylvanian region. It is a place badly designed for the 
homogenous idea of statehood which this recent war has caused to flourish. Again, Mr. Bratianu, I can hardly see how emphasising the multi-ethnic nature of the region helps your case, Fitzwilliam said. What do you see, Sir Arthur? Bratianu boomed. The argument is quite simple. If a region like Transylvania, with its conjoined geography, dispersed populations and intertwined systems, cannot be divided for the above reasons, it remains to determine who should rule it in its complete form. When considering a question such as this, one must consult the facts. And the facts are, Hungary is currently ruled by a dictatorial, autocratic, absolute monarchy, powered by the same Habsburg ambitions which initiated this late war. How could my countrymen accept the erection of this enemy monarch and his aggressive ambitions on our doorstep? How can we trust him? The answer is we cannot, and we must insulate Romania from future terrors by seizing as much land around us as we can for the sake of insurance. While this may seem drastic, you cannot deny my position. In actual fact, I can, Mr. Bratianu, Lady Nora exclaimed. I hardly think it reasonable to claim the entire pie out of fear of overeating. The comment caused a ripple of laughter, and a few rumbling stomachs could be heard as well. It was time to wrap up the meeting before the talk turned to food. Without warning, though, Premier Venizelos of Greece suddenly shot out of his seat. My lady, Mr. Bratianu, Forgive me for the intrusion, but I sense that the day has become long indeed, and I wanted to offer the position of Greece to the floor while we remain in situ. Venizelos then coughed and adjusted his tie as Bratianu and Lady Nora Chalk sat down, and then he began his speech. Thank you. Like many of you honourable gentlemen and lady, I too have perused the recent peace treaty, and I am afraid that, while I do not uncompromisingly protest, I do confess that I have an issue with the erection of a French protectorate on the borders of Greece. My people remain somewhat divided between pro-Entente and pro-German sentiments, and I worry that this regime might evoke anti-French demonstrations, which would be particularly problematic, considering the extent to which Greece relies upon the French friendship in places such as the Aegean Trade Network, Constantinople, the creation of the fledgling Smyrna regime, and of course in many other areas. The undeniable historical claim which Greeks have to the non-country of Albania, an invention, lest we forget, of the troubling circumstances which immediately followed the Balkan Wars, well, this historic claim must be taken into consideration. I will never seek to press the matter or inconvenience you, my friends, but the position of Greece must be acknowledged Poincaré moved quickly before Bratiano could resume his old conversation. Thank you, Monsieur Venizelos. Your comments have certainly been noted. Please bear in mind that the nature of this treaty is that it remains a draft, subject to change in the event that the majority wish it. Perhaps we should just give Albania to Spain, Orlando scoffed, his head balancing on his right hand, and evidently having reached the end of his patience. It would make about as much sense as her other gains... An awkward silence filled the room. So close, Kalander thought. But Antonio Mora did not take the bait. He pretended not to hear the remark and stared absent-mindedly out of the window. Kalander couldn't help but sigh with relief. Gentlemen, came a voice which had rarely been heard. I hope I can beg your indulgence for a moment. 
It was the Japanese Foreign Minister, Baron Makino Nabuaki. Kalender sighed again. Just how many delegates were going to interrupt each other before they could break for lunch? Forgive me for speaking out of turn. I understand there has been much of such behaviour today, and I typically seek to avoid such transgressions. I understand with respect to Japan's position in Asia and the recent arrangements made between myself and the Honourable Prince Sharun of Siam that this treaty does not guarantee. Was this omission due to accident or to the expectation that more is to be negotiated in the Asian sphere? I take it for granted, of course, that it was not done to deliberately insult my people who have been insulted already with the rejection of my pledge for racial equality. As if the silence couldn't get any more awkward, Kalender bit the top of his pencil. A fool's habit, he had been told, but didn't he feel like a fool attempting to dodge and manoeuvre around the interests and egos of these individuals? Like some nightmarish minefield where one explosion was always guaranteed to go off and set the others off in tandem. Kalender was then saved from an unlikely quarter, the Alsatian delegate, Charles Shear. Your Excellency... Shear began. I trust that Asia will be worked on in due course. It is my understanding that the aforementioned Arbitration Committee will be instructed to deal with any such qualms which may be left over from the German dilemma. Your Excellency, have you considered applying for representation on said committee? Everyone seemed to shift uncomfortably in their seats. Nobody wanted to see Japan take influence or decision-making powers away from the Western powers, just what was Charles Shear playing at? Nabuaki seemed to be considering the proposal, judging by his facial expression, and Charles Shear then acted. Forgive me, Your Excellency, to even have suggested such a thing. Sitting on said committee would represent a profound dishonour to your station and dignity. Allow me to absorb the dishonour in the name of representing states such as the mighty Japan. Would those in the room accept such an appointment? Nabuaki's expression changed to one of satisfaction. He nodded at Charles Shear in acknowledgement and said, Monsieur, I understand now why France is so eager to regain their lost provinces. If it is populated by honourable men such as yourself, Japan would wish to take Alsace-Lorraine for itself. Indeed, I will not reduce myself to sitting on a mere committee. Instead, I will confine my person to powerful councils such as these. I note that the Arbitration Committee has but one seed left to fill, and I would be contented to see an Alsatian warrior such as yourself fill it. Charles Shear looked momentarily confused. Alsatian warrior? And he then remembered that the broken nose he had suffered during the Paris riots had only partially healed. It certainly gave him a more intriguing look than the dull office boy his father had once accused him of being. If his father could see him now dueling words with these all-powerful statesmen. Thank you, Your Excellency, Charles Shear replied. You do me great honours. Gentlemen, if you are in favour, I would like to take my seat on this arbitration committee. Roosevelt then stood up himself and remarked loudly, Thank you, Mr. Shear. It is good that this seat has been filled. From this meeting today, it seems perfectly clear that we will be needing a good amount of arbitration in the near future. Good day, gentlemen, and I will see you again after lunch. The scene changed to a different room, 
this room filled with representatives of the different Dominion states from the British Empire. Gentlemen, I trust we are seated comfortably. The Prime Minister has very kindly allowed us to gather here in his suite for this discussion. Arthur McCauville gestured to the room. As a proud representative of Newfoundland, may I first express my warm thanks to my Canadian friend opposite, and may I welcome a new friend in our midst, Major General William Antrobus Griesbach. A tall, thin man with short dark hair and a long dour face, accompanied by an immaculately presented suit, rose from his chair. Sir Robert Borden smiled. It was pleasant indeed to have another figure in his corner, especially a man of such repute. Thank you for the introduction, Mr. McCallville. Gentlemen, I will cut to the chase, as there is no sense wasting words. We are gathered here as representatives of the British Empire, as the British family of nations. We are all in our own right, called upon to fight for the cause of democracy and sovereignty, and we have all bled in this recent war as well. As our mother country leads the way in the negotiations, I believe it would be wise to take advantage of the situation, and amongst ourselves devise mutually beneficial agreements. I see that my friends from Newfoundland have already made significant steps in that direction, which I applaud. Owen Lind and Arthur McCallville collectively nodded in acknowledgement at Griesbach, who continued, Indeed, gentlemen, we are all united by a common friendship and shared history, which means we are all equally perturbed when a threat to such arrangements present themselves. I am afraid I bring bad news from Russia. While the news has been slow in coming and unclear in its delivery, I do not wish to mince words. There is chaos in Admiral Kolchak's command, a chaos which I experienced firsthand as I commanded Canada's contribution to the Siberian front. Rations are ruined, men are poorly equipped and morale is low. I cannot speak for the situation in our cousin General McKay's command, for I have not had the pleasure of making his acquaintance, but if it is anything like the situation which I have recently extricated myself from, then I fear the prospects for success in this Clemenceau directive are grave indeed. Audible gasps could be heard in the room, and Louis Botha of South Africa spoke up. Major General, in light of your considerable experience in war, what course would you recommend for the many thousands of Canadian volunteers who are already present in southern Russia as per the Clemenceau Directive? Is it too late to save them? South Africa too has contributed poor commandos for the purpose of making the world safe from Bolshevism. Might it be too early to consider a rescue mission? Griesbach nodded in response. Mr. Botha, thank you for that. I trust you are familiar with the exploits of Napoleon's Grand Armée? While it suffered extensively, it was not wholly lost. I do not envision McKay's entire destruction, but I also cannot say with confidence, after all I have seen, that triumph is a possibility. Had I been present, gentlemen, I would never have allowed Canadian men to commit themselves to the Russian quagmire. Major General, Owen Lind began, I must ask your opinion of another potential quagmire, this one in Arabia. The backs of all men in the room stiffened. Arabia and its recent difficulties had made them all nervous, and the mutinies in the British armed forces had not helped. Griesbach cleared his throat before speaking. Very well, Mr. Lind, it is a reasonable question to ask, though a difficult one for conversation. As I understand it, the Arabian kingdom of Hussein bin Ali was initially prosperous, 
but subsequently faced terrible problems and revolts, in Palestine most notably, but also from competing familial claims to the title of King of the Arabs. Navwar Sharif, I believe is the man's name, had attempted to lead some sort of insurrection against the king's regime, an effort which was aided greatly by the untimely eruption of mutiny within the ranks of many British contingents. I am proud to say that Canadian honour was not impinged in such a manner, but the regrettable conclusion one must take from these developments is that, gentlemen, the empire may well be being stretched too thin. Additional gasps could be heard in the room, and Griesbach did his best to meet them. I know, gentlemen, I know this is difficult to hear, but as an experienced commander of men, I also know that you can only push the human spirit so far. This Arabian adventure is an important one, of course, for it will secure the interests of the mother country for many generations to come, and it will succeed the pitiful Ottoman regime which once held sway there. Canada is united, of course, in its support of the British civilising mission in the region, and I was buoyed by the news of roughly 5,000 Canadian volunteers electing to plug the gaps in the British armed forces and travel to Arabia to oversee the return of peace. Sir Robert Borden, the Canadian Premier, not wanting to see his colleague gain all the speaking time, rose next from his chair. Thank you, Major General. This has been most informative. I have recently been made aware of a decision taken at a meeting held not an hour ago by the major powers, wherein it was determined to send some kind of some kind of investigative committee to Palestine to gauge the complicity of major powers in the recent disruptions and to facilitate a peaceful rule. We continue to wait on the deliberations of the major powers in this regard. In the meantime, I believe the official word, having talked to the Prime Minister, is that the mutiny in the British Armed Forces had been mostly resolved, but that major concessions were made to the soldiery, who are understandably, gentlemen, very understandably anxious to demobilise and return to their homes. Volunteers and unemployed individuals are, on the other hand, themselves eager to take advantage of the disrupted nature of the post-war world. But these men will have to be trained, and conscripted soldiers from the mother country are proving an increasingly rare resource. I trust that more information will become available on the Arabian situation as time progresses, but I think I speak for all of us when I say that the Arabian Peninsula is merely one small drop in the ocean of work which we have in front of us today. We must not forget that the pressing mission, that of the German peace, is our major goal here. At that, the door into the plush suite opened, and the Russian delegate Dmitry Robotnik entered. Absorbing the curious gazes of those present in the room, Robotnik said, Gentlemen of the Empire, I apologise sincerely for my intrusion. Ah, Major General Griesbach, it is good to see you. Your reputation precedes you, and I am confident that you will prove most useful to the British Empire's objectives. This is where the niceties end, though, gentlemen, for I have been handed an update on the Russian situation, and I have also been made aware of a troubling development within the Austro-German delegation. Mr. Robotnik, Prince Ganja Singh, said in a silky voice, Please share with us the information you have on Russia first. Robotnik nodded and moved closer to the seated Empire delegates. Thank you, Your Grace. I am afraid the news is grave indeed, though. It seems that the forces of General Mackay were ambushed outside of Smolensk, and have recently fallen back to Kiev, awaiting further instructions. Gasps were heard in the room for the third time that day. Mr. Robotnik, 
said McCalville, a sense of urgency palpable in his expression. Do you know the status of individual contingents? The Newfoundland contingent, perhaps? The Tiger Brigade? Robotnik shook his head. I'm afraid I know little actual detail, my friend. Just that the situation is grave, and McKay's force absorbed many thousands of casualties. A fist was suddenly banged on the table. How could such a thing happen? Louis Botha asked incredulously. That force was the most powerful multinational army I have ever seen. Robotnik then brought a reply. Rumour has it that McKay's rations were ruined and his guides corrupted by Bolshevik spies. I have even heard it said that some old colleagues of that swine, Pavel Lobova, were involved in the sabotage. There was much grumbling and worried expressions around the room. Owen Lind then spoke up. Mr. Robotnik, thank you for this update, difficult though it is to stomach. Have you informed the major powers of these developments? Robotnik shook his head. Not yet, Mr. Lind. In fact, I had intended to inform the Prime Minister and came here straight away, only to find you gentlemen in his suite. The Prime Minister is incredibly busy, Mr. Robotnik, McCalville said. I hesitate to ask, but you also mentioned Germany and its delegates. Pray tell, what is the news of that theatre? Surely the two dire situations are not connected. Fear not, Mr. McCalville, Robotnik said. It is my understanding that the German delegation is attempting to gain as much information as it can about the German draft peace treaty, with the intention of formulating some kind of counter-proposals in the near future. In return for certain concessions, it is believed, Philip Scheidemann has declared his willingness to grant additional concessions to the victorious powers. Why, it is outrageous, Louis Botha snapped. The Germans are the defeated party. Tell me, Mr. Robotnik, any word of General Paul von Leto Vorbeck? He tends to veer on the side of moderation and sense. Surely he will not participate in this façade. Forgive me, Louis Botha and gentlemen of the Empire, Robotnik replied. I know very little, only what was communicated to me by a waiter who was serving the German delegation at the time. Not at all, Mr. Robotnik, Griesbach proclaimed, eager to have the final word. We are in your debt as it is for handing us such valuable information. Tell us, are you on your way now to inform the Allied leaders of these developments? Robotnik nodded mournfully. Yes, Major General. Shortly I will walk to their conference room. Mr. Robotnik, you may wish to wait a while before meeting with them, the Canadian Premier advised. It is my understanding that they are soon to examine an equally prickly subject. Now, it is not my belief that civilised men shoot the messenger, but would it not be equally sufficient to ask one of your underlings to make the delivery of the news in your stead? Dmitry Robotnik mulled over the idea of letting someone else take the fall for delivering the bad news. His exhausted, worn face was clearly in favour of removing one more burden from his long list. Thank you, Sir Robert, for the suggestion. I will fetch a technician at once. With that, Dmitry Robotnik left the room and left a strange silence behind him. All over the world, it seemed, the Allies were greeted with crisis. Was it now possible that their sole legacy, that of a German peace, was under threat as well? This made imperial unity more important now than ever before. Felix Kalender glanced around the room. 
The windows had been opened, the blinds drawn down somewhat, so a cool breeze now worked its way through the room, and the sun no longer blinded everyone that was sitting there. Lunch had been had, and a small break had done those present the world of good. They sipped ale in the late afternoon sun, and it almost seemed like everyone had relaxed. The room was certainly less full than it had been in the morning. Now only Tancred, Foch, Orlando, Antonio Mora, Charles Shear, and Felix Kalender sat at the table. Bruce Pug would return shortly to represent the United States. Gentlemen, Kalender began, thank you for returning after a long morning session. Our task is a relatively straightforward one, but it will be far from easy, I fear. This arbitration committee, of which much has been made, is the subject of our discussion now. A voice from the corner of the table interrupted him. It was Sir Alistair Tancred. Forgive me for the interruption, Monsieur Calender. I wish to inquire about the status of the investigative committee first, which will be sent to Palestine. Very good, Sir Alistair, Calender replied. Per a final agreement of the conference, this committee will consist of a representative from each of the five major Allied powers and will assess the military status of Allied forces in the region in addition to any regrettable crimes committed by such powers. Tangred nodded, before exclaiming himself, I wish to state for the record that British honour is involved in the defence of the Arabian kingdom of King Hussein bin Ali. The kingdom was established under fair legal pretences, and it cannot be allowed to fall due to barbaric revolt. Thank you, your position is duly noted, Sir Alistair, Calender said. But, gentlemen, I must return now to the issue of the Arbitration Committee. This morning we heard an offer from the Alsatian delegate, Mr. Charles Shear. Mr. Shear, do you wish to confirm your application? Indeed I do, Monsieur, replied Charles Shear, who rose from his seat. Gentlemen, I will be as brief as I can be, but I must confess that when I read the details of the Treaty of Buckingham, I was both perturbed and encouraged. A strange combination, for sure, but one which I will now unravel. It is encouraging that Signor Mora took it upon himself to forge the peace, yet it is much less encouraging and almost disturbing that neutral states such as Spain have come to expect so many rewards at the peace table from a war in which they did not participate. The peace treaty, I much confess, seems regrettably skewed against Italy and serves only to prop up the failing Spanish Empire. At this, Antonio Mora could not resist. He shot out of his chair. Mr. Shear, I must protest these accusations. Spain is a party to the Pact of Cartagena, and its interests must be respected. Felix Calender, his voice nearly leaving him, held up a hand in an effort to gain some calm, but he was largely ignored. The Pact of Cartagena is one of the most ridiculous documents I have ever read, spat Orlando. If Spain wishes to live in the past, she must not drag her French and British peers down with her. But Mora stood his ground, saying back to Orlando, I hardly think such accusations are fair, coming from a gentleman who sponsored the creation of IFTA, one of the most divisive and destructive institutions to ever delay diplomacy. Gentlemen, please, Calender urged, can we refrain from engaging in such petty tit-for-tat exchanges? President Marshal Ferdinand Foch now added his voice. Signor Orlando, I have the utmost respect for you and your wartime service, and I trust you know that the French friendship with Italy 
cannot be so easily severed. Orlando shook his head, though, and actually interrupted the President Marshal, saying, If this is the case, President Marshal, then why have you elected to join Spain and Britain in seizing Italian interests? If your friendship with Italy is so strong, will you support us in acquiring the protectorates of Croatia and Slovenia? Will you support our acquisition of the Tyrol and our rightful receipt of Fiume? Then there was a pause, and Foch simply said, I don't see why not. At that moment, Bruce Pug entered the room, with the Polish commander Josef Pilsudski in tow. Gentlemen, Pug said, apologies for my lateness. I located General Pilsudski, as I believed it would be beneficial to have a Polish voice. We must remember as we talk and act today, it is not just for the sake of peace, but for the sake of vibrant new states like Poland. There is indeed much at stake, and we should not forget that people's will be the ones that suffer from our mistakes and disagreements. Foch nodded a welcome at Pilsudski, who exclaimed without invitation, I see before me a room of proud, powerful gentlemen, but I hope you have not forgotten Poland, my friends. It is a difficult thing indeed to owe a debt to any person, but to owe a debt to nations is another thing entirely. Nonetheless, it was in the course of President Wilson's expressions of the 14 points that Poland's future was envisioned, and this future included a route to the sea and the reunification with the city of Gdansk. Signor Orlando, if Italy be blessed with such justifiable gains in Fiume, in Croatia, Slovenia and the Tyrol, can you see any justifiable reason to exclude Poland from its national rights in West Prussia, a region where Poles make it the majority? Orlando barely even had to think. You know my feelings and affection for Poland, General and you know I support the realisation of Polish national dreams. I fear, in fact, that this Treaty of Buckingham, in addition to its crimes against Italy, pays far too much mind to the feelings of the Germans, who are, after all, the defeated power. Bruce Pug and Pilsudski sat down at the polished oak table where the delegates were seated, and Pilsudski took a long drink from the jug of beer which sat in front of him. Foch then took the opportunity to speak. Comrade Pilsudski, France is with you in your quest for justice, in Gdansk, Silesia and anywhere else, just as we were with you in an earlier time, when the Duchy of Warsaw was the sole gasp of Polish self-determination to be had, just as we were with you a few weeks ago, when French soldiers marched hand in hand with their Polish friends and effectively founded the Continental Defence Accord. Together we will erect a wall against Bolshevism, and to my mind it is imperative that this wall be reinforced by sensible decisions. Signor Mora, would you consider adjusting the Article 6A of the Treaty of Buckingham and the Article 1 of the Polish Borders Treaty to this end? With all this attention, Antonio Mora shifted uncomfortably in his seat. President Marshall, I trust you understand what you are asking of me. The Treaty of Buckingham was modelled on the Polish Border Treaty, which has as its first article the order to the effect that Germany should not be split in half for the sake of Polish access to the sea. This is surely a recipe for future war between Germans and Poles. Hear, hear, Tankred said. Foch bit his lip and exhaled before trying again. Signor Mora, you know as well as I do that the Germans will use any excuse to worm their way out of their commitments as laid down in any peace treaty. I believe it does not matter what we take from Germany. 
She will always protest, no matter how small the object we take, because she believes that she is not in the wrong. Presently, with Bavaria detached from Germany and with French security forging a system of alliances in the East under the Continental Defence Accord, I am confident that a European peace will be guaranteed by the principles of collective security. If Germany wishes to challenge this peace in any decisions we make, she will face not the protests of a weak Congress of Nations, but the firm resolve of enemy militaries on all fronts. So I beg of you, Signor Mora, do not formulate this peace with German sensibilities in mind, but with the justice of our allies foremost in your heart. Kalender was starting to lose his patience. Thank you, President Marshal Foch, but we really must address the issue at hand today before committing to changing any peace treaties. We are called upon to determine the composition of the Arbitration Committee, which so far contains a British, French, Spanish and Swiss seat. Do those present approve of adding the Alsatian seat as well? Charles Shear spoke up as everyone was mulling it over. Gentlemen, in considering this decision, please note that Alsace-Lorraine will not serve the interests of the Arbitration Committee merely as a puppet of France. Following this ruinous war, my countrymen are eager to see justice prevail. Whether that justice benefits or hinders France as a consequence is not what will guide my decisions if I acquire a seat on that committee. Foch raised an eyebrow. Surely Charles Scheer would not act independently of France. Charles Scheer sensed Foch's hesitation. Forgive me, President Marshall, perhaps I was too blunt. The friendship of my countrymen with France is undeniable, but I merely mean to state that I will ensure our representative has a mind of his own. Foch still did not look entirely convinced, but Kalender then interrupted. Gentlemen, if we are satisfied, I wish to hold a vote on this matter. Will you accept the reimagining of the Arbitration Committee as consisting of a Spanish, French, British, Swiss and Alsatian delegate? It is time, gentlemen, to cast your vote. We move now to the next scene, a terrible war zone, far removed from the halls of diplomacy in the Annabay Hotel. This is Kiev, a city at war, and now stuck smack bang in the centre of the Russian Civil War. Dingleburst's expression told General David McKay all that he needed to know. There was no chance of moving forward, not while his men were suffering from dysentery and low on rations. The only chance was a breakout to the west, where a withdrawal could be secured and what remained of his men could be brought home. It was a bitter pill to swallow, for sure. General McKay was still not entirely sure how it happened. Some of the men were calling it divine intervention. Their force had been inexplicably ambushed outside of Smolensk, after several weeks of good progress in the face of a retreating enemy. McKay was now certain that the Reds had retreated, burning all before them, in a bid to prepare a counter-attack, which had obediently been launched the previous week. Now they had fallen back to Kiev, and it was imperative that the message requesting withdrawal be sent to Warsaw, where it would then be forwarded to President Marshal Foch. The President Marshal was certain to be apoplectic, but this was better than losing all the men under his command. McKay did the one thing which comforted him next. He opened his pocket watch, where a portrait of his wife and two children was secured. Their innocent faces smiled back at him. 
He hadn't seen them since May 1917 when he had been on leave, more than two years away from that rural paradise, far from all of this terror and death. How he longed to go home. One last push, he had told his men, before leading them straight into an ambush. McKay suspected his reputation would be forever ruined after this campaign, but so long as those he loved continued to smile at him, he did not care. Hitting send, the telegram was fired off to Warsaw. It would not be well received, but so long as it was received, McKay found that, again, he did not care. Dinglebrush, beside him, reloaded his weapon. The Belgian had been a surprisingly effective second-in-command, though McKay had hardly been able to say no to his offer, as the eager Belgian had virtually followed him since Warsaw, requesting a command. General, Dinglebursch said in his signature plummy voice, I think the enemy might already be here. McKay peered through his binoculars out of the second-story window of the Kiev town hall where they had established their base. McKay could see one of his soldiers perched atop a spire on the top of St. Andrew's Church. And this soldier now signalled him. The signal indicated that a Red Army contingent was en route, perhaps to ask for their surrender. McKay was not at that stage yet, though. He would resist to the last man if he had to, rather than risk spending the rest of his life rotting in a prison camp. Better to die now than to live never seeing his loved ones again. McKay clutched his pocket watch tightly before reaching for his rifle. Once more into the breach, old chap, Dinglebrush grinned. McKay couldn't help but grin with him. If nothing else, Dinglebrush's bright yellow waistcoat would draw all the fire. And that, dear delegates, is the end of the episode. Goodness me, that was a long one, taking two days rather than one day for me to write, so that's why we're a little bit later releasing it. You have to vote, as you may have suspected, on the composition of the Arbitration Committee. Do you support its creation and the Spanish, French, British, Swiss and Alsatian seats upon it? For the record, the Arbitration Committee is supposed to be capable of hammering out the final piece, and of meeting any serious objections which players have to the peace terms. For that reason, then, it's very important that it contains sensible and also active players who are willing to compromise. That's right, I said, compromise. Speaking of which, you will also be asked to vote on whether an investigative committee should be sent to Palestine to ascertain some facts on the ground and find out more about the situation in the troubled Arabian Kingdom. So two votes will be had, and make sure you check your emails shortly after listening to this episode to have your say. Make sure in the meantime, to all players, that you continue to tweak that Treaty of Buckingham, and make sure you actually listen to the objections of other players, so that we can make a piece which actually lasts. Other than that, welcome back, dear delegates, and thanks for listening. Until next time, my name is Zach, I've been the Delegation Master, and you've been a lovely delegate. Thanks for listening, or playing, or both, and I'll be seeing you all next week for episode 18.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 